There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, July 7th, 2023, the 898th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So there are some interesting updates to some of the stories that we've been covering this week. And so I want to go through a little bit of that and hopefully maybe even get into some Ukraine stuff. I want to start where we left off yesterday talking about censorship and social media and the Missouri versus Biden decision from the 4th. Because Donald Trump has an interesting interpretation of part of that decision. But before that, let's go to the great Mike Benz, the man who I have 
noted a few times, worked in cyber at the State Department under Donald Trump, and he knows more than anyone else in the public conversation right now about the censorship apparatus that the censorship regime was employing to direct and manipulate the public conversation and the central narrative. Just a quick clip here that he posted today. So understand when you see this word academic, 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 they are saying this to throw you off. They are saying this so that you don't see the word government. And so you don't see the word political operative. Through the academic institutions, they are raising a censorship mercenary army. As FFO has documented, $40 million have flowed from the Biden administration straight to 40 different universities they have raised as a censorship mercenary army to do the same thing that Alex Stamos and Stanford and Kate Starbird and UW did in 2020. Just as the word academics is used, so you don't see the word government cutout, the word studied is used so you don't see the word censored. So Mike Benz is discussing a headline in the Washington Post from June that says these academics studied falsehoods spread by Trump. Now the GOP wants answers. And he's making the point that the government is not only colluding with the social media companies to carry out the censorship. They're also colluding with these universities. They funnel money into all of these universities. These universities set up their little disinformation study groups and they analyze all of that data that is scraped from Twitter and other websites and social media platforms allowing them to track the public narrative and then analyze and manipulate those public narratives. And I like little snippets like this because it's important to understand that it's not just one social media platform or one little piece of the government. There's a big system set up here and the different parts of the system perform different functions within that censorship apparatus, within that censorship regime. The whole thing works together to complete the mission while at the same time diluting responsibility among all the various parts. You can't just pick out one part and say they're responsible because every time you do that and you question them, they say, well, no, it was actually the universities who were studying all of this and they brought it to our attention. And the government will say, we didn't do the censorship. It was actually these private companies, these social media companies, all private companies, they did the censorship and we didn't order the censorship. We just communicated with them about what we were being told by the academics. And when you view all of this as a collection of disparate parts, it becomes difficult to assign responsibility. The truth is all of the parts are operating as one cohesive unit and the responsibility should be assigned to that cohesive unit and to the individual parts because they are all involved in doing something that directly conflicts with the constitutional rights of every American citizen. You can't just blame Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey without blaming the universities and you can't just blame the universities without blaming the government. All of the parts of the system are functioning together. 
And to the extent that all the parts of this system are implementing an agenda set in place by government organizations, the government is then delegating the responsibility for the violation of First Amendment rights in this case to, quote unquote, private entities. And they're not allowed to do that. When they do that, these private entities are state actors. And it's critical to keep that in mind. Now, Donald Trump addressed the Missouri v. Biden order that was handed down on July 4th, blocking the government from its ability to order the social media companies to censor content. He enclosed three screenshots from that order and wrote, this is further proof that the presidential election of 2020 was rigged. And so let's go through these screenshots. In a magisterial 155-page opinion, Missouri versus Biden Judge Terry A. Dowdy of the Western District of Louisiana enjoined a large number of federal departments and agencies, including the FBI, the State Department, and the CDC, and executive branch officials from 1. Meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech posted on social media platforms. Two, specifically flagging content or posts on social media platforms and or forwarding such to social media companies urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner for removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. And all of these entries are rather Similar, they address emailing, calling, sending letters, texting, engaging in any communication of any kind with social media companies to violate protected free speech, collaborating, coordinating, partnering, switchboarding, and or jointly working with the Election Integrity Project, the Virality Project, the Stanford Internet Observatory, or any project or group for the purpose of urging, etc., violating the protected free speech of Americans. And that right there is what Mike Benz was just getting at. These are essentially university linked projects engaged in the study and censorship of Americans. And again, Mike Benz just mentioned that studied in this instance is a euphemism for that censorship. They're just studying it. The government is barred from threatening, pressuring, or coercing social media companies from taking any action that urges or encourages or pressures them. They're not allowed to follow up with social media companies to determine whether the companies have followed their orders in removing, deleting, suppressing, or reducing those social media posts. They're not allowed to request content reports from social media companies. They're not allowed to notify social media companies to be on the lookout, and they use an acronym here, BOLO, be on the lookout. The opinion starts out by quoting Friends of Voltaire. It says, I may disapprove of what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. Near the end, it quotes President Truman 
Once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it has only one place to go, and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. And we can now see Many years into this censorship regime, some people would believe it's just three years and that the censorship began during COVID. It has been going on much longer than that. We are fully into that stage that this passage from Truman warns about. We are down the path already of increasingly repressive measures. It has indeed become a source of terror for all of the citizens of this country, at least the ones paying attention and saying things right now that the government might find objectionable. Those Americans not saying things that the government might find objectionable right now will probably find themselves in the relatively near future saying and thinking things that the government will find objectionable. And then some of those people, of course, are silencing themselves from saying those sorts of things because they are already terrified of their government. From the same passage posted by Trump on Truth Social, in the intervening pages, Judge Dowdy lists copious evidence of a sustained effort by the Biden administration to lobby, cajole, co-opt, and coerce social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, to censor speech the administration found undesirable or inconvenient. This included information about the 2020 election, COVID, climate change, and other topics of national interest. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a period perhaps best characterized by widespread doubt and uncertainty, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian ministry of truth. It also included social media accounts that lampooned or parodied the Biden family and Dr. Anthony Fauci. And... It notes Twitter suspending a Jill Biden parody account within 45 minutes of a White House official requesting Twitter to remove this account immediately. The court found that opposition to COVID-19 vaccines, opposition to COVID-19 masking and lockdowns, opposition to the lab leak theory, opposition to the validity of the 2020 election, opposition to President Biden's policies, statements that Hunter Biden's Laptop story was true, and the opposition to policies of the government officials in power were all suppressed. The judge was particularly troubled by the government's efforts to control what cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency director Jen Easterly described as the nation's quote unquote cognitive infrastructure. In other words, what people think and believe. And that is a pretty incredible little phrase. When you think about it, the cognitive infrastructure of the nation, the idea that the collective conscience, the collective mind of the American citizenry is somehow similar to our roads and bridges and railways and airports, our infrastructure being how people and goods move across the country, our cognitive infrastructure in this case, then being how our ideas move about the country. Returning to the post, the court bristled at this idea. Without a free debate about these issues, each person is unable to decide for himself or herself the proper decision regarding their health. 
Each United States citizen has the right to decide for himself or herself what is true and what is false. The government and or the OSG does not have the right to determine the truth. That is absolutely correct. And I appreciate the clarity of that statement. The government does not have the right to determine the truth. Each person has to have the right to determine for themselves what is true and what is false. And because we all have the right to do that, and because it's important, we actually have a responsibility to think for ourselves and determine truth and falsity for ourselves. There is not some objective truth out there in the world handed down from authority that we all just can have access to. The source of objective truth, if there is one, for the faithful at least, would be God. But there isn't another one, and it's certainly not the science as handed down from authority, whether it's in the government or in the universities or in the public health sector or corporations or anyone else. And it's funny that the people most committed to this idea of objective truth derived from authority are the very people who tell us how important democracy is and how safe and secure our elections are. Democracy wouldn't even be necessary if everyone just had access to the single right answer and it could be distributed across populations. But they tell us that's actually the case. It's almost like they're not worried about the future of democracy because they will eventually come to the decision that democracy simply isn't necessary. Everybody knows what the truth is. Everybody favors the truth, except for those people trying to tear down our democracy. But all the good people, the good people know the truth and they agree with the truth and they are all going to decide the same things. And because they're going to decide the same things and they know that's what's right and good, we don't really need to let them vote, do we? What a waste of time and energy that would be. But back to the post and the court noted repeatedly that the government's suppression efforts were directed entirely at conservative views. All 21 of the repeat spreaders were associated with conservative or right-wing political views and support of President Trump. It is quite telling that each example or category of suppressed speech was conservative in nature. This targeted suppression of conservative ideas is a perfect example of viewpoint discrimination of political speech. The court leveled some of its harshest criticism at the FBI's efforts to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election. And this is quoting the decision before the Hunter Biden laptop story breaking prior to the 2020 election on October 14th, 2020, the FBI and other federal officials repeatedly warned industry participants to be alert for hack and dump or hack and leak operations. Twitter blocked users from sharing links to the New York Post story and prevented users who had previously sent tweets sharing the story from sending new tweets until they deleted the previous tweet. Further, Facebook began reducing the story's distribution on the platform pending a third party fact check. The mention of hack and leak operations involving Hunter Biden is significant because the FBI previously received Hunter Biden's laptop on December 9th, 2019, and knew that the later released story about Hunter Biden's laptop was not Russian disinformation. FBI Special Agent Chan 
testified that he believed social media platforms were far more aggressive in taking down disfavored accounts and content in the 2018 and 2020 election cycles. And we don't hear about 2018 all that much, but there is just another example of how long the censorship regime has been in place. The social media industry meetings were continuing at the time Chan's deposition was taken on November 23rd, 2022. And Chan assumes the meetings will continue through the 2024 election cycle. In the industry meetings, the FBI raised concerns about the possibility of hack and dump operations during the 2020 election cycle. The bilateral meetings are continuing, occurring quarterly, but will increase to monthly and weekly nearer the elections. CISA publicly stated that it is expanding its efforts to fight disinformation hacking in the 2024 election cycle. This is only a brief summary of the highlights. There is much more in the opinion, which deserves reading in full. Judge Dowdy deserves commendation for his titanic effort and perhaps elevation to the Fifth Circuit or higher. And just as I was describing with the Mike Benz clip, all these elements of the censorship apparatus working together as a system, not only to implement the agenda, but also to dilute responsibility. We also have, and Trump is pointing out, these various elements of election interference that all work together and dilute responsibility. You can't just blame the media for helping to rig the 2020 election. You can't just blame the machines. You can't just blame ballot harvesting or mail-in balloting. You can't just blame the Zuckerberg money, the purchasing of election judges, the mobile voting and all these other little wrinkles they put into place thinking that they would get away with all of it. The ballot drop boxes, the systems like Eric being used to inflate the voter rolls with voter registrations that don't connect to any eligible American voter, the printing companies like Runbeck and other organizations that are able to apply their own influence at different places in the process or the armies of attorneys in high-powered law firms able to conduct and wage lawfare for months and even years after the election to make sure that the results as reported, as generated, stay in place. It's not just one or two things. It's the entire system working together to complete the mission and to dilute responsibility so that the individual parts can't themselves be blamed for the entire thing. And that's what makes so much of what we're dealing with right now so complicated to unwind. These systems are very complex. It is a criminal enterprise operating with all of these different aspects and all of the different aspects must be known and proven as part of the enterprise in order to be able to go after the whole thing. That makes everything much more complicated. But if we get to the point that I believe we are getting to, that is what will ultimately allow the whole thing to be brought down at once. People get frustrated and eventually blackpilled knowing that some of the elements of this system of that criminal enterprise are known in detail and quote unquote, nothing is done. It's not that nothing is done. Nothing is being done. It's that nothing is finished. Because these systems are complex and every part of the system 
needs to be known and dealt with and proven as the part of the system. And when you've completed all the parts, well, then you can actually bring down the system. Now, as you might imagine, the illegitimate Biden administration is appealing the court's decision. Tracy Beans highlighted this today on Twitter. This is the memorandum in support of the defendant's motion to stay preliminary injunction pending appeal and alternatively for administrative stay. So they want the judge to back off this temporary block that he's put in place, this injunction. They write. Defendants respectfully request that the court stay its July 4th preliminary injunction pending defendants appeal of that order. So they want the court to remove that injunction, to remove that block until the appeals process is over. So we know the appeals process is going to happen. And there are two possibilities. One, that all of the government's activity as described in that post highlighted by Trump will be prohibited until the end of that appeals process, or it will be allowed until that appeals process when a final decision is reached and the Biden administration wants for it all to be allowed until then. That is what they are asking for. They write, the government faces irreparable harm with each day the injunction remains in effect as the injunction's broad scope and ambiguous terms, including a lack of clarity with respect to what the injunction does not prohibit may be read to prevent the government from engaging in a vast range of lawful and responsible conduct, including speaking on matters of public concern and working with social media companies on initiatives to prevent grave harm to the American people and our democratic processes. These immediate and ongoing harms to the government outweigh any risk of injury to plaintiffs if a stay is granted and for the same reason, a stay is in the public interest. Moreover, defendants have shown a substantial case on the merits regarding plaintiffs lack of Article three standing and failure to present evidence substantiating their First Amendment claims. Accordingly, this court should exercise its discretion to temporarily stay the preliminary injunction during the pendency of the defendant's Fifth Circuit appeal. So there are a couple claims in here. They're saying that the plaintiffs don't have standing to bring the case, that they haven't presented substantial evidence to justify their claims that the government is colluding to violate the First Amendment rights of citizens. I don't know, honestly, what could be more clear than that, but this is just a blanket denial. They're just saying that's not what we're doing. And these plaintiffs don't actually have any standing to bring this case in the first place. And then, of course, if those two arguments fail, they're saying that if the government is not allowed to carry on with this prohibited behavior, then some sort of irreparable harm will come to the people of America. The government is not going to be able to defend our interests unless they are able to censor us for whatever reasons they want. That's the actual argument that the government is making in this appeal. Now, we talked earlier in the week about the potential release of the JFK assassination files. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had brought it up. I posted in response about how Donald Trump would actually be doing that when he was once again recognized as the American president. And today he posted this. 
When I return to the White House, I will declassify and unseal all JFK assassination related documents. It's been 60 years time for the American people to know the truth. Trump links to an article on a website called themessenger.com. And in that article, it says this. The foundation says the CIA is withholding most of the records at issue. Some concern shadowy agents who came into contact with Oswald before the shooting. Other records concern Defense Department plans to stage false flag attacks on U.S. soil to justify an invasion of Cuba to topple the communist dictator at the time, Fidel Castro. A hearing in the foundation's lawsuit is scheduled for July 13th. The government wants to dismiss the case. And the foundation here is the Mary Farrell Foundation. Now, this article is kind of interesting because it has an explicit anti-Trump slant to it and includes quotes from people who are referred to as Trump critics. That's the nice way of saying they are Trump haters. But it is Trump who posted this, so he's not too worried about it. The article goes on. Under the JFK Records Act, the federal government was supposed to release all documents concerning the assassination in 2017 during Trump's term. But Trump broke his promise to make all the documents public. He released some records, but delayed full disclosure until 2021, leaving the decision to Biden, who has also released documents, but not all of them. Now, that's kind of funny because two paragraphs prior to that, this same article, as I read, says, the foundation says the CIA is withholding most of the records at issue. So the CIA was withholding records. The records are at NARA, the National Archives. The National Archives is the group who submitted a complaint to the Justice Department that triggered the Mar-a-Lago raid, if we are to take the central narrative at face value. And the regime in control of the CIA and NARA is the same regime who stole the election from Donald Trump, partly, not solely, obviously, but partly to make sure that Trump couldn't do things like this, like release all of the JFK files. But of course, it's all Trump's fault because Trump as president is like some sort of God King that can just force these things to happen. And if they don't happen, if these deep state bureaucratic organizations refuse to do what is ordered of them by the president, then it becomes the president's fault and he is responsible for blocking the release. He broke his promise. And as I discussed last week with some of the endorsements, Trump is always in mid-negotiation. If he wants to release all the JFK documents and there is a party on the other side who wants to block the release of some of those documents, and they have various points of leverage in the negotiation, Trump needs to respond to those various points of leverage and plot the best course through that. There's not some magical system where he is always guaranteed to get whatever he wants in a negotiation, and the negotiation is always ongoing. It's kind of funny that they are blaming Donald Trump for being unable to declassify and release all of these documents while they are also upset at Donald Trump for declassifying and then keeping as presidential records other documents that they say 
are related to national security as if there is no national security interest involved in the JFK assassination files. But at least the world is easier to understand when everything is Donald Trump's fault because he is so dumb and so evil. And speaking of Kennedy's, the New York Times posted this tweet yesterday. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a leading vaccine skeptic and purveyor of conspiracy theories who has leaned heavily on misinformation as he mounts his long shot 2024 campaign for the Democratic nomination. Here are five noteworthy falsehoods he's promoted. And you've got to love the language in this tweet and how they try to hammer him many times here. He's a leading vaccine skeptic. He's a purveyor of conspiracy theories. He has leaned heavily on misinformation. He's mounting a long shot 2024 campaign. He's promoted noteworthy falsehoods. What objective journalism from the New York Times. And here are the five noteworthy falsehoods. He has falsely linked vaccines to various medical conditions. He has made baseless claims about a connection between gender dysphoria and chemical exposure. He has falsely linked antidepressants to school shootings. He has bolstered a conspiracy theory that the CIA assassinated his uncle. And he has said that Republicans stole the 2004 presidential election. You see that? All conspiracy theories. And you know that the New York Times would never be wrong or lying, mistaken about any of these claims. If they say all of these claims are false, then the claims are false. And certainly you can trust them to describe Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s position on all these various issues correctly. They would never lie about something like that. And it's funny because this New York Times article is basically making the same argument that that deranged psychopath Sam Harris made in a recent podcast episode that a friend of mine forced me to listen to against my will because I'm pretty much over Sam Harris. I did a couple episodes last August on Sam Harris and the interview he did with the Trigonometry podcast where he supported what he admits to be a conspiracy among powerful people to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. If you remember, he's the guy who said, even if the laptop contained pictures of the corpses of children in Hunter Biden's basement, it was still a good thing that the government and media outlets and tech companies suppressed that story because if they hadn't, then Donald Trump might have been reelected. And that we are to believe is an existential threat to the United States of America. Sam Harris basically ran down a list of what he says are falsehoods and conspiracy theories promoted by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And essentially what the podcast was, was Sam Harris just reading fact checks from like factcheck.org or PolitiFact. That was essentially the substance of what he was doing. I don't know where he got his fact checks from, but for instance, he would answer one of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s claims with a claim from the CDC or the FDA. He would say, for instance, that any link between vaccines and autism has been thoroughly debunked. And that's all he needed to say, right? Once it's been debunked, it's been debunked. And the debunkers 
are obviously telling the truth. Therefore, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is obviously spreading falsehoods and disinformation and should be seen as a liar and a fraud and a conspiracy theorist and a crank. He should not be taken seriously at all. In fact, he's very, very dangerous. And Sam Harris notes that that's why he will not be giving Robert F. Kennedy Jr. a platform. He doesn't believe in platforming the spreaders of disinformation. He doesn't believe that people can make their own determinations about what's true and what's false. Is it the government's responsibility to determine truth and falsehood? No, it's the elite's responsibility to determine truth and falsehood. That's what we have these institutions for. And we desperately need these institutions because without them, truth and falsehood is totally unknowable. We need the authoritative source. The RFK Jr. episode of Sam Harris's podcast goes on for 20 or 25 minutes. And the substance of the podcast really is just attacks on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s character appeals to authority, meaning these fact checks. He just takes the word for the fact checkers or the debunkers. He reads a statement from Paul Offit, who Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has criticized to no end as part of that vaccine regime. And he expresses grave concern about what Paul Offit says are threats to himself and his family. He gets approached in public and threatened in public. He gets threatened online. And so all of this means that not only is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. lying, but he's also dangerous. In fact, he's causing direct danger to people like Paul Offit and, of course, Peter Hotez, who refuses to debate him. So Sam Harris, the most brilliant person in the world, his argument against Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a series of character attacks and a series of appeals to authority. Trust the science. Trust the fact checkers. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is absolutely lying. And it's unfortunate that so many people still fall for this kind of thing. They are used to hearing information from authority. They hear a claim that conflicts with authority. They are told that that claim is part of a conspiracy theory, and then they will check with authority and authority will tell them, yeah, that's a conspiracy theory. Here's a fact check. Here's a debunking. This explains what's really going on. Trust us. Trust the science. Trust the authoritative source. Don't ever trust those conspiracy theorists. They're just trying to trick you. And it really is an odd dynamic, especially when it comes to vaccines. And I end up engaged in these arguments and discussions often online, as you may have witnessed. And I continually find it amusing. We are genuinely trying to seek out and spread the truth in order for the people who have apparently lost the ability to do that on their own in order for them to protect their health, while at the same time, those people are repeating what they're told in order to protect the most wealthy and powerful people and institutions in the world while wishing death on us. And to be clear, I'm not claiming that they all wish death on us, but some of them do, and they don't even hesitate to say it. They want us to die because if we die as the unvaccinated, it will prove them right, that they made the right decision, even though there is no way for them to substantiate that. And that, again, is what I would call a total inversion within the false reality. We are trying to spread truth in order to protect 
the lives of others. Do we know the truth 100%? No, we can't. And we understand that. But to the extent that we can know it and to the extent that it could help other people to know it, that is our goal. Seek out the truth, spread the truth, and try to protect our fellow citizens from the regime because the regime clearly has no interest in protecting them while these very people are repeating arguments from authority in order to protect the wealthiest and most powerful people and institutions in the world while wishing us death. Total polar opposites. And the crazy part is they actually think they are protecting everybody because they already have the foundational misunderstanding that the government is trying to protect them and everyone else. Now, they've been going after Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for a long time, so it's no surprise that they continue to go after him, and now they have to go after him harder because he has entered the race for the Democratic nomination for president, and he is doing pretty well. He's doing better in the Democrat primary process than Ron DeSantis is doing in the Republican primary process. So Kennedy has become a substantial threat to them. Now, I think this is an interesting dynamic because all of the people who are Trump haters out there, all of these standard issue villagers who believed the Russiagate hoax, who followed the Mueller investigation, hoping it would bring down Donald Trump, who believed in the Stormy Daniels, Michael Avenatti claims, who believed in the Ukraine impeachment hoax, the people who believed all of it because it helped justify their hatred for Donald Trump and his supporters believed a lot of that stuff because the New York Times told them it was true. Now, a lot of those people over the course of the last eight years have continued to believe the mainstream media and have continued to hate Donald Trump. But over the past few years, since the beginning of the COVID era, have come to understand that they're not always being told the truth. Maybe they've realized that they were lied to about COVID. Maybe they've realized they were lied to about the vaccines or about the very violent insurrection. Maybe they've realized that they were lied to about the Ukraine war. But throughout all of those lies, they are able to direct their anger and frustration at certain different entities. Maybe they don't like Anthony Fauci anymore, or they don't trust the CDC and the FDA. Maybe they are worried about the military industrial complex and the push for war of choice for profit in Ukraine, but they still hate Donald Trump. They are certain that Donald Trump is just as much a part of the problem as anything else. They voted for Joe Biden. They supported Joe Biden. They supported Joe Biden in the face of his own illegitimacy. They covered up for election fraud. They just accepted what the television told them as a function of their hatred for Donald Trump. Even as their faith in these institutions has been chipped away and they have lost their trust in some of these institutions, they still think it is correct to hate Donald Trump, even though their hatred of Donald Trump was entirely based in the stories they were told by these same mainstream media outlets. But what happens when these same mainstream media outlets use the same approach that they used against Donald Trump to now destroy the character of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? 
Now, again, my purpose is not to say that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a perfect person or beyond criticism or that his political positions are all good. They certainly are not. But just think about what it must be like for these Trump haters who are now in the process of doubting the mainstream media, knowing that they've been lied to about a great number of subjects. This is why they're supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the first place, right? If they went along with the whole story, if they were still going along with the whole story, they would just be supporting the establishment. They wouldn't be supporting an anti-establishment candidate like RFK Jr. in the first place. So they do realize that to some degree they have been lied to about these subjects, but they don't think they've been lied to about Donald Trump. They think Donald Trump must really be that bad. Now they are seeing their guy attacked in all the same ways Donald Trump was attacked. As I said the other day, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the Donald Trump of the left. He exists to wake these people up to these certain realities. Now, what is going to happen in the minds of these people? I never envy having to inhabit the mind of one of these standard issue villagers. We talk about how frustrating the situation is for us, how dark it is to be awake to all of this throughout this time, understanding what has been done in our name, what is still being done in our name. But imagine being in the heads of these people still trying to hate Donald Trump while seeing all of those anti-Trump entities that you used to support now becoming anti-RFK Jr., who you are convinced is the savior of America. You know that Donald Trump is so bad that you had to support Joe Biden. And now you have figured out that Joe Biden is also so bad. And you've adopted that view that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both just as bad as one another. We need an alternative to that. Here's the perfect anti-establishment alternative, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And then all of a sudden, all of your trusted media organizations that you have claimed to be experts at all times throughout the last three and a half years, they are all now telling you that your hero is a liar and a fraud and dangerous and trying to take the country down this dark path. How does this change their view of Donald Trump? How does this change their view of the media? Now, a bunch of people responded to me after I posted this on Twitter and Telegram yesterday saying, I don't think that they're actually going to figure this out this way. And my response is that they don't actually need to figure this thing out. This is the sort of thing that kind of operates at a subconscious level. They're going to get angry at the New York Times for the way they are treating RFK Jr. And then it will be that much more difficult for them to get mad at Donald Trump when the New York Times is telling them about all the bad things Donald Trump is doing. Once they really understand that the New York Times is not at all trustworthy and they begin to express their anger about this fact, it's going to be a lot harder for them to listen to the Times when they say, for instance, Donald Trump was keeping classified national security documents in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. That sort of cognitive dissonance eventually leads to them not believing the mainstream media at all. And probably most of the people listening to this podcast have experienced the exact same thing. I certainly have. Throughout 2020, 
I saw the pattern of the media lying repeatedly over and over and over, lying about the same things. And then I saw Donald Trump on television and particularly throughout the period during COVID where he was giving daily press conferences. I would see him saying true things about COVID and about therapeutics, about the statistics, while the media was running a death counter on television and talking about how Donald Trump was dumb and dishonest the entire time. I knew that wasn't true. And when it came down to it, I was like, oh, wow, the media is lying about absolutely all of this. They are lying about a pandemic. We're told we have this very deadly pandemic that could kill us and all of our loved ones. And they are clearly lying 24 hours a day and trying to manipulate us through those lies. And it is clear why they are manipulating us and what they want us to do. And when that becomes clear, it's pretty easy to take the next step and think, oh, wow, Donald Trump actually really is telling the truth. What else has the media lied to me about? What else has Donald Trump told the truth about? And once your mind reaches that point, it's pretty much game over. I claimed back in February that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to be able to red pill Democrats on a whole range of subjects, eventually election rigging and election theft. And then, of course, Donald Trump and the way they are attacking Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to speed that along. Now, yesterday I was talking about Ron DeSantis and the fact that there had been a few incidents all in the same short time frame that seemed to indicate something was going on with the Ron DeSantis campaign. Multiple DeSantis simps were writing articles of unity cope, telling us how we had to all come together because we're all on the same side, while other DeSantis simps were going absolutely crazy, rage tweeting nonstop, seemingly worried that the entire Ron effort was collapsing. And that coincided with a judge's decision to block parts of Florida's SB 7050. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not sure that that thing will all be blocked or is even all blocked now under this temporary block. The decision itself is a bit unclear on this. I'm not sure that that is the inciting incident for this outside reaction. I was just pointing out that it might be and generally in situations like this, where a bunch of things that are all connected are happening at the same time and all pointing in the same direction. Usually there is some common underlying cause of that. I am not a hundred percent sure that it is this temporary decision on SB 7050, although it might be regardless, there is a substantial change in tone in the public conversation about Ron DeSantis. This is from Fox Business, and this too was cited by Donald Trump on Truth Social, writing Mark Simone on Ron DeSanctimonious. Talk about failure to launch. He's just sinking. Sanctimonious is getting absolutely demolished for yesterday's performance in New Hampshire. No crowds, no enthusiasm, no interest. His campaign is in total disarray. He's hurting himself very badly for 2028. See, loyalty does matter with patriots. Uh, that's tough stuff. Mark Simone, I want to go to you on this. We talked about this at dinner last night. Um, it's tough stuff, but it may be accurate stuff. And in your judgment, 
with the poll shifting, I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy is now a guy, he's 10%, closing in on DeSantis, DeSantis keeps falling. Is DeSantis going to be out of the race? What's your view? Serious view, serious question. Uh, I, I, listen, we like the guy. We got to do an intervention. We got to tell him you're 44 years old. You're way <laughs> too early. Wait 10 years when you're in your 50s and do it. Uh, he, he doesn't have the campaign skills. He is I'm talking about failure to launch. He's just sinking. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, you're right. Vivek will will pass him pretty soon. And I don't think he has to drop out. He's just going to fade out and just wither and die on the vine there. So now the establishment candidate has lost the establishment media. Meanwhile, we have his wife, Casey DeSantis, essentially running his campaign, now doing ads of her own, trying to launch a group that they're calling a grassroots group named Mamas for DeSantis. And then we had Ron himself on Fox News yesterday. But there are those that say there's something about you that's not connecting for whatever reason, not connecting with the voter, whether or not it be personality. Donald Trump says it's about loyalty. Francis Suarez says it's about your relationships. And it's not about those individuals so much as I'm curious in the, the, the analysis of Ron DeSantis of why not yet is connecting. Well, I think, did you just see the news today about uh, the record fundraising haul we've had? Nobody's been able to match that in the history of modern presidential politics. So we've got a huge amount of support uh, to be able to take the case to the people. We really haven't started that yet. Uh, we're in the process of building out a great organization, and I think we're going to be on the ground in all these early states. Uh, it is a three yards in a cloud of dust type situation. That's what we're going to be doing. Right. But look, at the end of the day, nobody has stood up. Uh, for hardworking Americans more than I have over these last five years and delivered the level of results that I have. That's going to be a great story to tell because if we did it in Florida, we absolutely can do it as president. That'll mean the border, the invasion stops. Mm -hmm. It'll mean the economy's restored. Uh, and it's going to mean that woke ideology ends up in the dustbin of history. I mean, honestly, what is this? DeSantis is asked about his bad poll numbers, and he responds that he's raising tons and tons of money. Now, a guy named Teddy Schleifer addressed this claim on Twitter yesterday and wrote this post, breaking down Ron DeSantis's fundraising numbers. The campaign, $20 million raised in the first six weeks. 8.1 million of that was raised in the first 24 hours and only 11.9 million raised since. The super PAC has raised $130 million since March, but 83 million of that was raised by a transfer from the money that he was raising last year in his governor's race. And $20 million of this total was raised from one man named Robert Bigelow. That transfer from what he was raising last year in the governor's race is particularly suspect because Ron DeSantis is not, for all intents and purposes, acting as the governor of Florida right now. And he clearly didn't intend to be the governor of Florida. He ran for re-election last year, promising to be Florida's governor for the next four years. And it was in November when his shadow campaign began. And of course, we've discussed the resign to run rules that made it so Ron DeSantis could be governor of Florida and run for president at the same time, which is exactly what he's doing. He doesn't seem to be focused on Florida at all. And all his big 
accomplishments are starting to look rather small and pointless. They look like they were just for the headlines so that Ron DeSantis can present himself as some sort of fighter with this laundry list of accomplishments in Florida. It's worth remembering that all of his accomplishments in Florida are being achieved with massive GOP majorities in Florida achieved through the same election system that got Ron DeSantis a surprise big win last fall. He thought it was going to be around five points, ended up around 20 points, even though he got fewer total votes than Donald Trump got in 2020. How odd. So $83 million of that total that Ron DeSantis is bragging about as this record setting campaign hall in a presidential race was not brought in during a presidential race. It was just transferred over from money he built Florida citizens for last year in the governor's race. This was covered yesterday in the conservative treehouse where Sundance writes, note something they don't brag about the average contribution amount. He noted earlier in the article that Donald Trump's average contribution is $34 from small money donors. He says they don't even want to touch the issue of average contribution amount, which is likely in the 300 to $500 range because it's mostly big dollar donors and professional political bundlers. Hence the Yale club dinner in New York city last week, the $6,600 per plate appearance was the latest effort by team DeSantis to connect to the ordinary working class voter. He needs to try and regain footing after his effort has fallen short of the Sea Island billionaire's expectations. Despite the combined efforts of Rupert Murdoch, Ken Griffin, Elon Musk, the Sea Island billionaires, hedge fund managers, Wall Street groups, and a host of multinational corporations, recent polling shows the richest fundraiser in the GOP field has failed to gain traction with the lesser controllable voters. Additionally, the purchased right side media, Daily Wire, Salem Incorporated, and a strong coalition of conservative influencers are producing diminishing returns. The former Ted Cruz crowd is pushing hard, but it becomes a complicated dynamic of influence when they must pretend they are not aligned with Jeb and the Bush clan. So Ron DeSantis's major claim to campaign success and viability right now is his fundraising, which comes primarily from big dollar donors, and the number is inflated because well over half of it was already donated in his gubernatorial run. And it's funny because one of the anti-Trump arguments is that it's unwise to place all our eggs in the Trump basket because of his age, because the media has generated such high negatives for him among certain parts of the population and because of his quote unquote legal troubles. But shouldn't we apply the same thinking in the other direction? Imagine we had put all our eggs in the Ron DeSantis basket, seeing him become this guy. In that same interview, he tells Fox News's Will Kane that he has been attacked more than anyone. And he says Donald Trump has spent more money attacking me than he spent supporting candidates in 2022. And that's odd because this is the first time that former presidents 
apparently have had to meet some sort of standard in how much they're supporting candidates around the country. And it's also odd because the GOP establishment was specifically working against the candidates Donald Trump chose to support. That same establishment now being the people supporting Ron DeSantis and the idea that any political candidate in American history has been attacked more than Donald Trump is absolute madness. Ron DeSantis is trying to self-victimize and he is just showing himself to be a petty liar. He is the sort of candidate that the country has now spent years recoiling from. Mark Simone on Fox News mentioned the problems he's setting himself up for in 2028, meaning potentially any presidential run or any run for political office in the future. And it's probably actually worse than that. Ron DeSantis is ending his political career, barring some really shocking and unforeseen circumstance like that. This is just an info op the entire time or some amazing resurgence, some rebranding that ends up yielding success. I don't see how that's going to happen. Now, Politico had a big piece today on Kevin McCarthy and the fact that he has not endorsed Donald Trump yet. The headline McCarthy declines to endorse Trump looking to avoid a GOP civil war. Kevin McCarthy is risking Donald Trump's wrath by not officially endorsing his third White House bid. But the speaker is also fulfilling an important mission, sparing the House GOP a civil war over 2024. While scores of McCarthy's members have already backed Trump, plenty of other Republicans are steering clear of the polarizing former president in the GOP primary. That camp includes virtually every swing state lawmaker, many of whom fear that embracing Trump could spell their electoral doom next fall, as well as allies of Trump's rivals from Ron DeSantis to Doug Burgum. And no one knows who Doug Burgum is. He's actually the governor of North Dakota, but no one cares. It is also absolutely absurd that they are pushing the narrative notion that embracing Donald Trump is going to spell electoral doom for these candidates in 16 months. But back to the article. So as much as McCarthy might risk alienating Trump by staying on the sidelines, the California Republican also provides the most political cover he can to his vulnerable members. The pressure on the speaker to choose sides will only grow throughout the summer, though, as Trump locks down support across the House GOP and questions intensify about why McCarthy isn't fully embracing the man who helped deliver him the speakership. Some Republicans already view McCarthy as a Trump backer in all but name. Pro-Trump rep Dan Muser of Pennsylvania suggested that the speaker is subtly clearing a path for his members to rally behind the former president by the end of the primary. Muser summed up McCarthy's 2024 message to House Republicans this way. Hey, you're with DeSantis right now. That's okay. We get that. You're with Mike Pence, Tim Scott. But in the end, we've got to come together with who's going to be our winning candidate. Another House conservative granted anonymity to speak candidly, said that a Trump endorsement might only make matters worse for McCarthy and his incredibly split conference. The reality is, if we get Trump, there's probably a good possibility that we don't keep the House next fall, 
said this conservative who has not endorsed in the primary. McCarthy knows that. He knows that if Trump's on top of the ticket, we probably lose New York and California. If we lose the House, there's no way McCarthy stays as minority leader. He's gone. Now, what in the world is this person talking about? First of all, notice the anonymity. This anti-Trump representative needs to be granted the condition of anonymity to speak candidly, believing that the endorsement of Trump might somehow make matters worse for the House GOP candidates. Well, if that's true, if Trump is going to make matters worse for them, shouldn't that be the majority position? Why do you need anonymity to say something like that? If Trump is the weak one, why are you scared to come out against Donald Trump? And what does he mean losing New York and California as if those are Republican strongholds? We just talked about the California GOP primary yesterday. Donald Trump is expected to win that. So if Donald Trump is the most popular candidate in the GOP in California and in New York, how would it hurt their chances to support Donald Trump in those states? Donald Trump's coattails in 2020 got so many Republicans elected. That's another reason why it was so shocking that Donald Trump could possibly lose with all that happening. But now we're supposed to believe that Donald Trump would be a drag on the 2024 House GOP ticket in dark blue states, or so we're told, while also being the most popular GOP candidate in those states. Does this make any sense? What kind of Republican rep would say this? Well, it's clearly an anti-Trump, never Trump Republican representative. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are no longer in the House, but this sounds like something they would say. But this entire argument is ridiculous. This entire framing is ridiculous. If you need the condition of anonymity to be able to share these candid thoughts, then you are clearly representing an underdog minority viewpoint. It's not possible to recognize that and at the same time suggest that someone other than Donald Trump is more powerful and more likely to win. And in opposition to that, we have the view of Dan Muser from Pennsylvania, who's on the record by name, simply saying Kevin McCarthy is just being wise here, allowing people to support who they like through the process, knowing that he will have them all coalesce at the end behind Donald Trump or as many of them as possible, obviously. Which one of those seems to track with reality and which one seems like a ridiculous political argument meant only to support a counter-narrative? Now, one person who seems less doubtful about Donald Trump's chances is Tucker Carlson. Uh, where am I on Trump now? What? I love Trump. Um, personally, I think we're going to see Trump's emergence as as the most significant thing to happen in American politics in a hundred years, because he reoriented the Republican party um, against the wishes of Republican leaders. Uh, but when I think about Trump right now, so it's July of 2023, you know, I'm struck by his foreign policy views. You know, Trump is the only person um, 
with stature in the Republican Party, really, who's saying, wait a second, you know, why are we supporting an endless war in Ukraine? And that, you know, leaving aside whether Trump's going to get the nomination or get elected president or would be a good president, you know, I can't even assess that. All I can say at this point is I'm so grateful that he has that position. He's right. And everyone in Washington's wrong. Everyone. Mm. And Trump is right on that question. And it's a big question. That war is reshaping the world. It's reshaping the economy of the world. It's reshaping populations. The ref- I mean, I was just in Romania last week, you know, which is, of course, shares a border with Ukraine. The, the refugees in that region, the number of people killed in that war, I mean, Europe will never be the same because of this war. And it really matters. And Trump alone among popular figures in both parties understands that. And I'm grateful for it. Whether he gets the nomination or gets elected, you know, words really matter. Saying something true out loud matters. And he is saying true things about Ukraine and God bless him. That's how I feel. So Tucker loves Trump personally. Well, that's odd. We were told just a couple of months ago with the reporting on Tucker's text messages in the Fox Dominion lawsuit that Tucker actually thought Trump was like the devil. He actually hates Donald Trump. Well, it doesn't sound like Tucker does hate Donald Trump. Now, that sound clip there is from an interview with Russell Brand. But I think the most notable part of that is when he says Trump is right on this issue and everyone in Washington is wrong and it's a big issue. That happens to be true on virtually every issue. And it's time the public recognizes that. It's especially noticeable when people are claiming people, for instance, who might be supporting Ron DeSantis, that someone else is better than Trump on some certain issue, as if Trump was wrong on those issues. And it's funny that they always go to COVID and the vaccines, even though everyone, including Ron DeSantis, was more wrong than Donald Trump on those issues. Donald Trump generally finds himself alone on the important issues, being the one who is right in the political sphere where everyone else in Washington is wrong. There is no one who takes a leading position in comparison to Donald Trump on any important issue. There is no politician in America right now who is more right than Donald Trump on any single important issue. And beyond that, Donald Trump is more or less the only person who is right about the most important issue, which is election theft. Now, speaking of Ukraine, we have gotten news this week that the illegitimate Biden administration has agreed to send cluster munitions to Ukraine to use in the proxy war against Russia. Cluster bombs are banned by over 100 countries around the world. And we were told by various organizations last year that it was Russia using cluster munitions and that the use of cluster munitions constituted war crimes. So Russia would be war criminals for the same activity that is now being approved of by the illegitimate Biden administration. The Gray Zone's Max Blumenthal over the weekend, there was a video of testimony from him before Congress that went viral. Max Blumenthal is a hardcore liberal and no fan of Donald Trump 
whatsoever, but also does great independent journalism. I obviously think that he is missing a critical understanding of the dynamics of geopolitics right now, but he nonetheless does good work. He posted this on Twitter yesterday. Laura Cooper, a 20 year plus Pentagon official, set the stage for Biden's authorization of cluster munitions to Ukraine, telling Congress on June 30th they would be, quote, useful versus Russian armor. Cooper previously assisted the impeachment of Trump by claiming his freezing of military aid to Ukraine was, quote, illegal. In official Washington, internationally banned cluster munitions are useful, while suspending arms deliveries to a foreign nation is against the law, if not treasonous. And he includes this audio. I would appreciate that. Thank you. The, um, Ms. Cooper, the, the Russian military has been using cluster munitions with impunity in Ukraine. Yet the administration has refused to provide similar weapons, known as DPICMs, to Ukraine. I'm aware of the dangers of unexploded ordinances. However, the Ukrainians believe that their battlefield benefits outweigh the costs. And since these would be used on Ukraine's own territory, Kyiv would be incentivized to judicially limit the post-war threat to civilians. Do you think that the DPICMs would be helpful to Ukraine's counteroffensive, particularly in offsetting Russia's quantitative advantage in manpower, armor, and artillery? Mr. Chairman, our military analysts have confirmed that Topikums would be useful, especially against dug-in Russian positions on the battlefield. The, the reason why you have not seen um, a move forward in providing this capability relates both to the existing congressional restrictions on the provision of depictums and concerns about allied unity. But from a battlefield effectiveness perspective, um, we do believe it would be useful. So the questioner there was Republican representative from New Jersey, Tom Keene. It's remarkable that he says the munitions would be used by the Ukrainians on Ukraine territory. Therefore, they'd be incentivized to be extra cautious with these munitions and not kill Ukrainian citizens, which is completely ignorant of everything that has happened over there since the very beginning, particularly initiated by Ukraine's own Nazi battalions who have been absolutely awful to Ukrainian citizens. And of course, it also fails to recognize that most of the territories he's talking about, the ones being referred to as Ukrainian territories, are no longer Ukrainian territories. They are absolutely Russian territories. And the people of those regions have voted in referenda to become part of Russia. That is essentially just part of Russia now. And so while all of this is going on and the Biden administration is still sending more money over we are being told by the Ukrainians that the Russians are planning to somehow attack the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant that they have controlled for over a year now. We have been told multiple times over the past year plus that there is going to be some disaster at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. We were told that Russia was launching projectiles into it last year, risking some nuclear disaster. All of the mainstream Western media outlets this week have been claiming that Russia is going to attack the power plant that they control. 
And Russia, of course, is saying, no, this is Ukraine planning on doing this. This is the West planning on doing this. This is quite clearly a false flag. This is from CNN on Wednesday. Ukraine warns Russia might attack the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. How worried should we be? And down at the bottom of this very strange article that's just essentially making everything up. They have a subheading that says, would a nuclear incident benefit Russia? Now, remember, we've had multiple attacks that are being blamed on Russia. And then it turns out that it's Ukraine that did them. We were being told that Russia has some advantage and no clear Russian advantage has emerged from any of these situations. Think about the Nord Stream pipelines. Clearly not Russia who did it. Russia was blamed. The bridge to Crimea. No benefit for blowing that up. Russia was blamed. What about the Karkova Dam? No benefit for Russia. Russia was blamed. Now we have the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. The article says it is unclear how Russia would benefit from causing an explosion at the plant. The winds are blowing east. So it's going to affect Russians in terms of military effectiveness. Zero. It's just stupid. Al Burke said any nuclear incident would, quote, just be self-harm. It would just harm Russian held territory. I don't get the play as well as not providing any clear military strategic gains for Russia. Causing a nuclear incident may backfire diplomatically. The Financial Times reported that Chinese President Xi Jinping has personally warned Putin against using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, according to Western and Chinese officials. This would not be the use of a nuclear weapon, but I guess that's close enough. The Kremlin denied the report, calling it fiction. However, it adds to the sense that Russia's continued nuclear threats are causing reputational damage among its supposed allies. And I mean, at this point, you should be able to see how ridiculous this whole narrative is. We are being told Russia is considering attacking a nuclear power plant it controls with winds that would move the fallout from this attack on the nuclear power plant into Russian territory. And that while this does not constitute nuclear weapons, it is part of the same Russian nuclear threat. And while it would provide Russia no strategic military advantage, all of these continued nuclear threats by Russia are causing reputational damage to Russia. So none of that makes sense from a Russian perspective. In the least, the only way it makes sense is the global state media propaganda outlets justification, which is trying to cause reputational damage to Russia, which they believe somehow would reduce Russian leverage in the situation. And that all of that somehow would threaten Russia's standing with its quote unquote supposed allies like China, though it's hard to see where the word supposed fits into that description since Russia is right now in the BRICS currency alliance with China. They're just actual allies. All of this is just an obvious denial of reality. The article goes on. Warring parties do not tend to raise the nuclear specter lightly. 
India and Pakistan, despite being locked in conflict for decades, agreed in 1988 to exclude nuclear facilities from their conflict zones, recognizing the risk that such attacks pose. They have exchanged a list of their nuclear facilities every year since 1992 to avoid any accidents. Hence, Russia's reckless threats may contribute to further isolation on the world stage. Yes, they are isolated from the global West's regime, but not from anywhere else. I've noted many times that the BRICS alliance already encompasses countries representing over half of the world's population. The only countries Russia is isolated from are the members of the global West. The United States, the EU, and the British Commonwealth nations around the world. That is the entire anti-Russia opposition alliance. All of them reliant on the global regime's fiat currency, and none of them powerful enough to have stopped any of this from happening in the first place. This whole story is ridiculous, and it clearly only exists to set up the false flag narrative that at some point... The regime probably intends on using. And hey, it could be this weekend. Two weekends ago, we had the fake Wagner coup that was going to overthrow Putin and overthrow the Russian government. And then last week, we had the outbreak of color revolution riots in France. I imagine we'll have some temporarily shocking geopolitical news this weekend as well. Now, I am sorry if you've been disappointed this week at the fact that I have not covered the cocaine in the White House story, the apparent most important issue in the mainstream media this week. Now, I don't really care about this story at all. We already know that Hunter has a drug problem. It doesn't really matter whether or not it's his drugs in the White House. There is now some hint by the mainstream media that they're trying to wrap Kamala Harris up in this somehow. I don't care about any of that stuff, but that is not to say that this story is entirely irrelevant. This is the sort of story that absolutely everybody is going to hear about one way or another, and they will talk about it because it is so ridiculous. This is the sort of story that standard issue villagers will be unable to ignore because it is just immediately so provocative. It's one of those things that people are going to end up feeling hypocritical about because it's just so blatant and so obviously the sort of thing that people would have gone nuts over had it been Donald Trump Jr. rather than Hunter Biden in the middle of this controversy. And it certainly defeats the notion that the adults are back in the room and that Joe Biden's illegitimate presidency is a return to decency. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else 
by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!